Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your great word. And even in the midst of warning, there is grace. There's always grace until we take our last breath. So God, as we unfold this text... Open our hearts, even for those of us who have believed, open our hearts so we might go to a lost and dying world to tell the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Once upon a time, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the fields with grass and with trees that produce fruit, birds of the air, the fish in the sea, and the animals of the fields. He also created the man in his likeness. He put the breath of life inside this man and gave him a spirit. And this man became a living being who could feel, who could think, and who could choose. This man was created in the likeness of God. God also made a companion for a man called woman. Because in his infinite wisdom, he knew it would not be good for man to be alone. And he named the man Adam and the woman Eve. And told them to be fruitful and multiply and let them have rule over his creation. You see, Adam and Eve were different from the rest of God's creation. And he placed the man Adam in the garden called Eden. And he told Adam that he was permitted to freely eat of every tree in this beautiful, beautiful garden. Except one which was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He commanded him not to eat the fruit of Of that tree. And even though God gave Adam rule over all his creation, this one exception let Adam know that God still rules over him. The law was testing the man Adam to see if he would trust what he said. One day in the garden, the serpent, which was a manifestation of Satan, came to Adam's wife Eve and challenged her belief about not eating the fruit of this one tree. He injected doubt into her mind about God's word to her husband. And her childlike trust in God under the headship of her husband began to melt into temptation. And she looked at the tree and its luscious fruit and saw it was good for eating. And she ate the fruit of the tree and that was explicitly forbidden by God to eat. And then she offered it to her husband. Instead of Adam instructing his wife not to eat from this tree and to resist the serpent... He took up the offer. And all of a sudden, for the first time, they felt shame. They felt fear. They felt guilt 
which they had never experienced before. They sinned against their Creator. Life would never be the same for them. Matter of fact, not only for them, but all humanity and the universe as well. Death came to Adam and Eve, and death comes to every living creature. Sin, which is disobedience, brings death. Death is separation from God. Adam and Eve chose death instead of life. But God had been working ever since the fall, reconciling people back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I started off as once upon a time, but that was no fairy tale. That was true. And we are all reaping the effects of Adam and Eve's sin to this very day. And here's what I want to bring to you tonight. Do we trust Jesus' claims about himself, which leads to eternal life? Or do we reject Do we reject what he says, which inevitably results in eternal damnation? And every one of us makes choices. For the genuine believer, we made the right choice, which is to honor God's Son, Jesus Christ. And we made the right choice only because God the Father drew us to his Son and changed our unbelieving hearts into believing hearts, lest any of us should boast. However, the unbeliever's choice is to reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Even though there's overwhelming evidence that they are sinners, that they are in need of a savior, they reject the gospel and have no one to blame for themselves. They choose to die in their sins. Well, in our text tonight, we know that Jesus' strong condemning statement to the Jewish leaders was not arbitrarily spoken, but was spoken in light of the overwhelming evidence that they had That Jesus is who he said he is, but they refused to believe in him and continued in their unbelief. They saw the miracles. They saw blind eyes open. They saw deaf ears unstopped. They saw paralytics made whole. They they saw the lepers cleansed. They they saw him feed thousands of thousands from a few loaves of bread and fish. And the list goes on and on. And they even saw him raise the dead. The works he did were works only God himself could do. And he, spoke, he, and he spoke the words of life to them. They heard the gospel and they rejected it. There was nothing left for them but eternal punishment. They chose hell instead of Christ. They chose the world instead of Christ. And they chose unbelief instead of Christ. This is three things we're going to look at tonight. And the first one is, let's look at this first one. They chose hell instead of Christ. And do we choose the light of Christ What hell due to rejecting what he says? Verse 21 and 22 again. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? Now the word again seems to indicate a continuation of the events of the Feast of Tabernacle, which I've been preaching through. Where Jesus invites people to drink from him living water in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 where he claims to be the light of the world. And the people have been following Jesus all around Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacle. And many, especially the Jewish leaders, have been contradicting everything Jesus said. Everything Jesus said they contradicted. In other words, they rejected Jesus, their only hope. And now Jesus tells them, There will be a time you will seek me, but it will be too late. You will not be able to go where I am going. You made the ultimate choice, 
And now there is an ultimate separation. This is the second time Jesus told the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 33 to 35. He told them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? See, the first time, they wondered if Jesus was going to the dispersion among the Greeks. In other words, they probably thought Jesus was contemplating a mission to the Gentiles. It's the first time. This time, they thought he was contemplating suicide. And that's why they said, will he kill himself? But they were, they were no further in their understanding than the first time. Both times they failed to understand what he meant. Constantly failed to understand what Jesus meant. And you know when you sometimes speak to people about Jesus Christ, they constantly fail to understand what the words of eternal life are. In their willful ignorance, and I I want to underline that that was willful ignorance. They get sarcastic. Will he kill himself since he's saying, where I am going, you cannot come? You see, the Jews believed that suicide caused a person to go to the blackest part of hell. The first century Jewish historian Josephus said in his writings, The War of the Jews... This is what he said. He said, the souls of those whose hands have done violence to their own lives go to the darkest haze. And God their father will visit the sins of the evildoers on their descendants. So basically they were mocking, mockingly saying, we cannot follow him. Well, he must be going to hell. We're going to heaven. We can't follow him. They were being very sarcastic with him. The ironic thing is, Jesus did give up his life, but voluntarily, not through suicide. He would died not by killing himself, but at the hands of the mockers. How ironic. John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, no one took Christ's life. Nor did he take his own life, but he laid it down of his own initiative in loving obedience to his father. His enemies that nailed him to the cross were instruments in God's hands to fulfill his own purposes. And what I can't wrap my mind around, and I don't think you can either, is that Jesus died at the very hands of the people he created. There's no greater humility Humility than that. He created man. Man sinned against God. And he took man. That sinned against him. And allowed him. Allowed them to crucify him. And the place he would go. Where his adversaries could not follow. Was heaven not hell. Quite the contrary. They were going to hell not heaven. Because they rejected the only way of salvation. Who was standing right in their midst. They chose hell instead of heaven. Anyone who ends up in hell is responsible for themselves. No one 
Now, 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 let's be honest. No one in their right mind says, you know, I choose to go to hell. Who chooses to go to hell? Now, I know people make ignorant remarks. I, I'm sure many of you heard it. Like, and this is a famous one. Yeah, I'm going to hell with all my friends, and we're going to have a party down there. I mean, how many times have you heard that? It's totally ridiculous, but, you know, God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they say. That's all we can say. And if you catch them in a serious moment, they would not say, I want to go to hell. Of course not. But rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ is choosing hell. Let me illustrate. My father, who I miss very much, was a smoker. He was a smoker. He smoked until about, say, 62, 61, 62. And the reason he stopped smoking at that age was because he was diagnosed with uh, pulmonary emphysema. My father lived to about 89 years old. However, he suffered with this disease for almost 30 years. Now, he didn't say, I choose emphysema. No, of course not. But he chose to smoke, which led to this horrible suffocating disease. By the way, my dad did come to Christ two months before he died, which I always rejoice in God. But if a person dies or is seriously injured in a car crash, let's say, due to excessive alcohol content. They didn't choose to crash. However, they chose to drink, which led to the crash. No one chooses to go to hell, but chooses to continue to reject Christ and continue to sin, which they will continue on the wide road that leads to hell. That's what happens. And unless God regenerates a person by the, His Holy Spirit, that person will continue, continue, in essence, to choose darkness rather than the light of Christ. A hell-bound person is lost and separated from God. A hell-bound person has no faith and dies in their sin. Secondly, they chose the world instead of Christ. Unless we are born from above, unless we are born again, we will continue to choose this present evil world above Christ. Let's read verse 23 again. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. The reason why they were hell-bound was because they were from below. They were of this world. They were not born from above, which is a new birth. They were not of this world. Now, obviously, it's obvious that he's not talking about the material world we live in. Jesus himself lived in the material world. The world that we live in, even though it's marred by sin, is God's wonderful creation. And we enjoy his creation, the mountains, the streams, oceans, trees, flowers, fishing, I have to throw that in, and so on. And the climax of his creation is people whom we enjoy relationships with. So he created the world we live in, which is good. It's a good world, even though it's marred by sin. However, in this context, the term world is not good. The Greek word for world is cosmos, and it could mean the world, it could mean the universe or, 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 or the earth. In other words, the created world. But it could also mean, and in this context, that's what I believe it means, the world system, a world system. It means the evil world system. The evil system spearheaded by Satan, which opposes everything that Christ and his kingdom stand for. What Jesus is telling them is that they were from two entirely different realms. Dr. D.A. Carson says, the contrast is between the realm of God himself 
and the realm of his fallen rebellious creation, the world, which hates Jesus because he testifies that what it does is evil. And I think the point here is that John always makes wonderfully is contrast. You know, you can't mix water and oil. You can't mix light and darkness. You can't mix truth and deceit. You can't mix that which is from above to that which is below. You can't mix part of this world system, which is materialism, humanism, immorality, pride, selfishness, everything that opposes God, everything that opposes truth, uh, that opposes righteousness, holiness, and so on, and be part of God's kingdom at the same time. It is impossible to have one foot in the world, the world system, and one foot in God's kingdom. And if you're a professing Christian, it is impossible to be part of the two worlds. If you're born again, you have been born from above, and you are snatched out of this world. Amen. And listen, we were all once part of this world, every one of us. Paul tells the Ephesians, in Ephesians 2.12, he says, Remember that you were at this time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers in the covenant of promise, having no hope without and without God in the world. But now you are no, you and I are no longer part of this world system. Jesus prayed right before his crucifixion in John 17. His great high priestly prayer. He said in John 17 verses 14 through 16. He says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not, out of, they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Now, before any of us get puffed up with pride saying, yes, I chose Christ and turned my back on the world. We need to remember, there's one reason you could choose Jesus and turn from this world is because he chose you out of this world. Because he called you out of this world. And listen to John 15, 19. He says, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because Jesus was not of this world, and his enemies were, they hated him. They hated him so much that they crucified the glorious Son of God, the sinless Son of God. And if they hated Jesus, make no mistake about it, prepare yourself, they will hate you and every true Christian. The world hates us. They hate us. Once you came to Christ... There was a shift. Our hatred towards God became love for God. And the love for this world became hatred of this world. And the world that loves its own now hates us because we no longer belong to it. We don't think like the world anymore. We don't act like the world anymore. We don't have the world's DNA anymore. Matter of fact, as Paul told the Corinthian church in 4.10, he said, we carry in our bodies the death of Christ so that the life of Christ, may of Jesus, may be manifested in our bodies. And the author of Hebrews talks about the people of faith from the Old Testament. It says, the world was not worthy of them. And I can honestly say that God declares the world is not worthy of genuine believers today. The Pharisees were in the world and of the world. Jesus 
And all believers, past, present, and future, are in the world, but not of the world. However, we don't love the world or the things in the world. 1 John 2, 15-17. We're not friends with the world, because James says, friendship with the world is enmity towards God. James 4, 4. And we are not conformed to this world. Romans 12, 2. A poem called, Unless It Got Inside, by an unknown author, illustrates the point well. And it says this, All the water in the world, however hard it tried, could never sink a ship unless it got inside. All the evil in the world, the wickedness and sin, can never sink the soul's craft unless it got inside. Even though we are in this world, we are no longer of it unless it gets inside of you. Thirdly, and I believe this is the ultimate reason why people go to hell, and are in the world, and that is, they choose unbelief instead of belief in Christ. The bottom line is, do we believe what Jesus says, or do we reject what he says and who he is? Verse 24 again, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, they were as many today, stubbornly imprisoned by their willful unbelief. Jesus knew this, and yet he still offers hope by saying, unless you believe, you will die in your sins. And the key word is, unless. Which provides the only hope of eternal life, and not dying in their sins, and facing God's eternal wrath. You see, they rejected, they rejected, they rejected, Jesus offered, Jesus offered, Jesus offered. And that's why they came, and that's why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost and to offer them salvation. And that's what his name means. The Greek word is Jesus, and the Hebrew word is Yeshua, which is the Hebrew word for Joshua. And they both basically mean the Lord is salvation, or, or Yahweh will save. That is who Jesus is, and that is what he does. He saves. He was not interested in the Pharisees going to hell. He was trying to get through to them. And that's why he said, unless. He didn't say, that's it, you're finished, you're going to hell. He didn't say that. He said, unless you believe. However, there is a line that we're about to cross where they will die in their sins if they did not believe who he said he is. And Jesus said, again, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now, you and I reading this, this is what we hear. Unless you and I believe that I am He. But to the Jewish ears, that phrase is this. Unless you believe that I am. The pronoun He does not appear in the Greek text. In your Bibles, you will see He. But in the Greek text, it does not have He. And that makes a big difference. You see, and the Jews knew what he was talking about. They knew from Exodus when God was speaking to Moses from the burning bush and Moses asked God his name. And he replied, you go tell Israel, I am who I am sent you. And they understood perfectly well that Jesus was claiming the same name, I am. What is Jesus saying here? 
I like what Dr. Kent Hughes says. He says, when Christ made his statement, he was essentially saying to the Jews that unless they believed he was the eternal God, they would perish in their sins. That is also what Christ says to us. And Dr. Leon Morris said this, it is impossible to have the kind of faith that John envisages without having a certain high view of Christ. Unless we believe that he is more than a man, we can never trust him with the faith that is saving faith. Now, to be a Christian, one must believe in the full revelation about Jesus. We must believe that he is God. And there's many today, and you've heard us say this many times from this pulpit, there's many today that want to take away Christ's divinity. They want to take away. I heard one particular preacher say, well, Jesus, when he said it is finished, he gave up his divinity. Well, God can never cease to be God. Jesus always was is and always will be fully divine. And if you reject that, Jesus is saying, not me, the Gospels are saying you cannot be a Christian. It's also possible that one can believe it intellectually, but not receive it in, in, his, in it his or her heart. There was a noted chemist, Dr. Gordon Aless, who founded the development of insulin for the treatment of diabetes. Ironically, he died of that disease. Either he didn't know he had the disease, or he purposely did not use it, use his own remedy. And that's tragic. The man who knew more about the cure for diabetes actually died from diabetes. In the same way, a person can know about Jesus, that is, he is the great I am, but if he doesn't believe with his heart that involves receiving the cure, he will die in his or her sins. Verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Now, whether they were being sarcastic, in other words, who are you telling us we are going to die in our sins? Or just asking Jesus, who are you? In either case, it is totally astounding in light of the miracles they saw him do and all the claims they heard Jesus make from the very beginning of his ministry that they should ask him, who are you? I mean, that was total, once again, total stubborn, willful ignorance on their part. In light of all the evidence God gives mankind and shows him that he is a sinner in need of a savior, he provided for him, man will still ask by their actions, who are you or who are you telling to tell me that I am going to go to hell if I don't repent and turn to Christ. Don't tell me what to do in my life. That's what the Jews was insinuating back then, and that's what people do the same today. Many years ago, when I was, when I was ministering in a contemporary Christian band, we were going to do a concert one Saturday night. And in these concerts, we didn't just play music. We testified and we preached the gospel so I decided at that time to invite my boss. And he graciously accepted the offer and came to the concert held in the church that night. The concert was over. Everybody went home. <clears throat> Monday morning comes and I get a call into his office. And he began to respectfully to criticize what took place that Saturday night. And so he basically said this, who are you to tell me how to live my life? I'll never forget sitting down there and saying, oh, what did I get myself into? You know? When people reject you, they are rejecting Jesus and are saying, 
Who are you? The overwhelming evidence made it crystal clear who Jesus was. And in the second half of verse 25 and verse 26, Jesus responds to their question. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about it, the Father. It was as if Jesus was saying, why do I speak to you at all? I am telling you the same thing I've always been telling you. I'm the light of the world. I am the bread which came down from heaven. I have been sent from the Father. What else did they need? It was perfectly clear what he was saying. And I have experienced this kind of spiritual dullness on numerous occasions. And I'm sure some of you have. There were times I spoke the gospel to people and told them that it's by God's grace that one can be saved and not by works. And they respectfully listen and the conversation ends. And I thought, well, maybe they understand until the next time I converse with them and they tell me that they think they're a good person and that's why they should go to heaven. And then I talked to them again on another occasion and the same thing. And I think to myself, did they not hear what I was saying? Why do I even bother talking to them about this? This is spiritual dullness. I am convinced more and more. I was telling my wife today, I am convinced more and more, unless God opens a person's heart, that person will never come to faith in Jesus Christ. You could say spiritual things crystal clear, but if the person is spiritually dull, they will not and they cannot understand. And I think Paul proved that point In 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He is not able to understand them. Don't be frustrated when a person does not grasp when you are speaking the gospel to them. Pray that God will have mercy on them and open up their eyes. That's what I do. A person dies in their sins because they reject who Jesus is. And that the Father sent him. Verse 26 and 27. Well, we read that. We don't have to read that again. But Jesus said that he had much to say to them, and he could, that, you know, he really could have exposed their hypocrisy and their pride. He could judge them, and his judgments of them would be correct because they, they had more than enough revelation to be accountable to his judgment. Which is always in perfect harmony with his father. And Jesus only spoke what his father commanded him to speak. He could have said much more and even condemned them. But his purpose in coming was to give them and the world the message of the one who sent them, his father. Jesus told them many things about his father. He always talked about his father. John chapter 3, John chapter 5, John chapter 8. But spiritual dullness kept them from knowing that Jesus was speaking to them about the father. Jesus sent, the Father sent Jesus not only to testify to the world who he is, but also to be lifted up. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. There was a coming day when there, there would be the remedy for spiritual dullness and not understanding the truth. And that remedy is Jesus lifted up on a cross. When Jesus died, 
and was resurrected back to life, the truth of his claims would be undeniable. What Christ was saying then was, when I am lifted up on the cross, you will know that I am. You will know that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. Christ's death and resurrection vindicated every claim he ever made, also every claim the prophets and the apostles made about him. In a nutshell, his death and his resurrection, his lifting up, proved his being I am, and also proved that the Father sent him on a mission which erased all doubt to any open mind to his divinity. Praise God. One of the functions of the cross was to reveal who Jesus is. And that's when the Jews will have known the truth. This doesn't mean that because, because of the cross that every Jew will be converted, but anyone who is converted is because of the cross, which brings glory to God. Even those who reject Christ bring glory to God. Did you know that? Even those who reject Christ bring glory to God. Dr. Carson says, And even those who do not believe stand at the last day condemned by him who they lifted up on the cross, blinded to the glory that shone around them, yet one day forced to kneel and confess that Jesus is Lord. What is perpetrated is meant for evil Humiliating Christ on the cross, God the Father meant it for good, and that was Christ's exaltation. From the cross, Jesus went to the grave. From the grace, he was resurrected back to life. Then after 40 days, he ascended back to his Father and enjoys the glory he had before the the foundations of the world. And Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, really says it all about Christ's humility and his exaltation. Let's read that. He says... Paul says, have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, so that at the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. I love the song. By Rick, Fa- uh, Rick Founds. Lord, I lift your name on high. The chorus sings of humility and exaltation, which we really read in, here in Philippians. And, and most of you know this song. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. And there's much to say about this, but time is not going to permit me to talk about all this. But why did Jesus do all this? Why? This may come as a surprise to some of you. But first and foremost, Jesus went to the cross not for our salvation. Now, I'm not a heretic. Just hear me out on this. But he came first and foremost to please the Father. Verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Yes, he was lifted up on the cross for our redemption. But it was because the Father sent him. And Jesus obeyed and this pleased the Father. John John 17 verse 4 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
Jesus' teaching on the cross and his actual going to the cross was the Father's perfect will. This is what drove Jesus to do and to say what he did. His deep passion was to please the Father. And he was keenly aware of his presence at all times. And verse 30 tells us, And as he was saying these things, many believed. His words were so compelling that many believed in him. And we know on the day of Pentecost, when Peter got... He stood up and gave that wonderful sermon. 3,000 came to faith in Christ at one time. Now, of course, the many here in verse 30 doesn't necessarily mean that all of the many had a genuine belief. We see in some of the parts of Scripture that many believed, but superficially. There wasn't a genuine conversion. But nonetheless, Christ's word pierced the hearts of some in the crowd, which resulted in salvation. Let me conclude with this true encouraging story. This is something that happened to me. This I was a kind of a new Christian. One day I was asked to speak to a man who had a sex change operation. He changed his name to Renee. And I was asked to speak to him because I was told he was either going to have a nervous breakdown or he's going to commit suicide. Now, I didn't know how to go about it, so, you know, I do what I always do when I don't know how to do something. I pray. And the thought came to me to write a letter to him. And I say him because that's what God created him as a man. However, if you saw him, you would not think that at all, that she was a he. You wouldn't think that. Anyway, I wrote the letter and had, had it delivered to him. And basically, I shared the gospel with him in my letter. And after about two weeks, I get a call from Renee. And he said to me, well, how do I go about this? And I didn't know really what he was talking about. Because I, I, I didn't forget about the letter, but I just didn't know what he meant. So I said to him, I don't know what you're really speaking about. So, he said, so I said to him, well, what do you mean? And he said what you said in the letter. And then I realized what he meant. So I explained the gospel to him, and he prayed with me and invited Christ into his heart. And he began to come to my Bible study, and was dramatically, I mean dramatically changing. He would carry his Bible to work, and people would say, Renee, you are absolutely glowing. What has happened to you? And it was absolutely amazing, in two weeks, what the power of God did in this man's life in a short period of 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 two weeks. It was a short period of time. It's dramatic change in his in his appearance and his love for Christ. <clears throat> and about two weeks later he was brutally, brutally murdered. And I was in a state of shock. I mean, I you I was a new Christian. I, I was a brand new Christian. I was in a state of shock. I mean I I still honestly I don't know if I ever really recovered from that state of shock. That's how how, how it, it was like a knife going right through my heart. I didn't understand. I was a new Christian and had never experienced something like that. And it shook me to the core. But my faith in Christ stood firm. My faith in Christ never wavered. Now, at that time, I talked with my pastor about what had happened. And he wisely said to me, and I never forgot this, and it really brought so much comfort to my heart. He said, 
God snatched him before the storm got too great for him. And that brought great, great comfort to my heart. And these thoughts came to my mind. He may have destroyed the body in this life, but in heaven there will be neither male nor female. And he'll have a new body in heaven. And I believe he's rejoicing with Christ right now. And one day, I believe we'll all see him. I believe God had mercy on him and saved him and took him home. You see, Rene looked to Jesus lifted up. He put his faith and trust in him. He chose heaven instead of hell. He chose Christ instead of the world. He chose to believe in Christ instead of unbelief. He made the ultimate choice to die in faith and not in sin. And if you never made that ultimate choice, you can by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. And if you're a Christian tonight, you know what it is to be forgiven. You know the joy you have you have knowing that you're not going to die in your sin. You know it. So go tell people who are going to die in their sins the good news of Jesus, that they don't have to die in their sins. And let me close with one scripture, John 12, 32. And this is what Jesus said. And this should be a, our prayer, and this is what we should do as a church and as individuals every day. Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Let's lift up Christ every day. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Let me just close in prayer, and then we'll have communion. And Father, no, 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 no communion. Oh, no communion. Sorry. Okay, well, let me close in prayer anyway. And Father, we thank you, God, for your mercy. Even in the midst of strong, condemning warnings, there's light. There's light of grace. We thank you, God. You came to seek and save the lost. You've come to break the hard heart. And give us a heart of flesh. God, only you can open the hearts of people. Can a leopard change his spots? No. Can a man change his heart? No, Lord. Only you can. Help us to go out and share the gospel with others, God. And break stony hearts. Give them hearts of flesh so they can turn around and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Christ's precious name. Amen.